there, and welcome to the Geek Easy. Pull up a drink, pull yourself a chair, and get locked and loaded for this episode about mercenaries on Netflix. I'm Beth. I'm Tim. And I'm Ralph. And welcome to the Geek Easy, where we drink and we talk about geeky things. So Tim, what are we drinking? Tonight, because we are talking about two different series that involve mercenaries, mm-hmm. uh, we are drinking the Soldier of Fortune. Love it. Yeah, so this drink consists of rum, lemon juice, uh, sugar, all shaken together, and then poured over with ginger beer. Nice. And if you're Beth, a crap ton of ice. <laughs> you I, did put a lot of ice I in yours. That was impressive. I a lot of ice in mine. I'm like, she wanted to make it last. Listen, I like to pretend I'm drinking a a full drink, you know? Yeah. It's funny because when, you know, when I started putting this together, I really wanted a drink that would come out gold. Um, now, the ideal would, of course, to be a uh, gold schlager because it oh, literally yeah. has gold in it. Yeah. But, you know, hey, I didn't have it. So uh, I went with this and I poured it in the glass and I looked down and I was like, huh. That's champagne. Yeah. Like, it looks so much like it's champagne. It's uncanny. Champagne color. Uh, it even fizz because the ginger beer is so fizzy. It, mm-hmm. it was fizzing like champagne. I was like, oh, okay, this works. Huh. It's either champagne or, like, Miller High Life. <laughs> the champagne of beers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just the Miller High Life, which that brings back some bad memories. Gross. Get the 40s out. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no, no. Okay, so you know what I did not think that I would like? What's that? Extraction. Yeah. On Netflix. I truly... Okay, so you and Ralph watched it on a boys' night. We did, and we loved it. And I right. want everyone to know, I went in full intents and purposes, was not going to enjoy this movie. <laughs> Except for the fact that it has Chris Hemsworth in it. Which is and a good I reason to like something. Chris Hemsworth. Uh, Which is probably why it's done as well as it has. Maybe. <laughs> Gets a lot of attention. But... I actually enjoyed this movie. I had a lot of fun watching it. Um, and there were a lot more complex themes in it than I expected there to be. Um, which gave made way for a lot of really interesting conversations. Yeah. So let's do a let's do a quick synopsis as to what this movie is about. I think the title kind of sums it up, but let let's just do it anyway. Tim, shall we? Sure. So this is Based off of a graphic novel named Ciudad, and I bring that up because the original title does not tell you much about uh, the plot. No, it does not. No. But in the movie Extraction, uh, we see a young boy, the son of a drug lord, who is kidnapped by another drug lord, (laughs) uh, being potentially rescued, uh, the rescue attempts of a mercenary named Tyler Rake. Uh, who is who is sent in to retrieve the boy and bring him back to his father, and that's really it. That that is like the, the overview. Um, you know, a lot of times I feel like it takes us a while to get through what something is. Like that is all you need to know going in. And I think that's the charming part about this because this is this is kind of to me the the next iteration of the John Wick series. Um, like with John Wick one, like it knew exactly what it wanted to be. And I think that this movie knows exactly what it was supposed to be as well. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes simplicity is key. I compare this to um, kaiju films like Godzilla, uh, Mothra, Pacific Rim. I compare this to Nicolas Cage films. Um, 
any of them. Just basically a film where like, you know what you're getting yourself exactly. into. Exactly. If you like, you know, if you watch it with a sense of like, okay, I want to have an entertainment uh, a time of entertainment. I want to have a fun time. I want to watch an action film. Yeah. Sit down and watch it and you won't be disappointed. Yeah. It does everything that it sets out to do and it doesn't go beyond that. Um. It, well, maybe it does. It does. It does uh, in well, some ways. You know what? I would argue that it does because um, I like to think of myself as a cool <laughs> girl, right? Yeah, like I'm yeah. a cool girl and like so cool. I've got, I've got um, lots of guy friends and so <laughs> what does this mean? I'm not... This is Stacy. So, and you do not shame I don't, her. Um, I'm not just watching like chick flicks, right? right? right. Like I'm into super. One of the guys. Yeah. yeah, I'm one of the guys. I'm super cool. Uh, no, but like the Winter Soldier is your I, favorite, but not because he's hot, like, right? Um, I don't really like strictly action films, right? Uh, like I mean, stuff like. The Italian job, born supremacy, like those things those don't really, born films don't really get me going or anything. Right. Um, so I expected Extraction to just kind of be like this run of a mill, shoot em up, like no substance Another whatsoever. mindless action film. Yeah, and that I was, even the substance that they were going to present, I was going to have a problem with it. Like I was mm-hmm. going to be like, meh, you know, uh, no good. I enjoyed this film. Even though I really did not think I was going to, <laughs> and fully expected to right. be like, nah, I don't like this. Um, it's it had a certain certain things going for it. Uh, for one thing, it wasn't directed by Michael Bay, so that's well, <laughs> you know. Oh no, but it's true. Well, and I do think that's one of the things that I really liked about this. This film was actually directed by a stuntman. Yeah. Which I think gives us a really cool perspective that we don't normally get. Yeah. If you're going to have a film like that's centered around the stunts and the action in it, like it just makes sense. But it's not something that you see often. Mm -mm, No, absolutely not. Um, But I think maybe we should because stuntmen bring a different perspective to filmmaking. They see things. I mean, we were watching a behind the scenes video where they had shot this scene, and he was like, I want to point out right here, where right. he gets thrown on the ground, that is a padded floor, so that you don't have to hide pads beneath a costume, and it makes the hits feel real. And I was like, whoa. Yeah, like, it's, and it's such a, it seems like, as an audience member, it seems obvious. Yeah. Uh, but, but, you know, to a director who doesn't do stunts, that's not something you would think of. You just make your set all wooden and then hire stuntmen who bring in their pads. Right. Uh, and as an audience member watching that, mm-hmm. you can really feel when they're not pulling punches. Yes. You know, you can feel when it's when it's tougher. Uh, um, the other thing that really blew me away was, and again, a lot of this was like looking more behind the scenes. Right. They did a lot of continuous take shots which is something else directed by a stuntman you would expect, but if you're just like your average run-of-the-mill Hollywood director, maybe not. Um, but when you have a continuous take, the stakes are higher. Yep. The stakes are higher to get all the punches in, to like, you know, get get all those real reactions in because you're filming for 25 minutes straight, and when you have to reset, that's a lot of stuff. That oh, you've yeah. got to pack back into there so the exhaustion's real. 
the hits feel more real. And as an mm-hmm. audience member, that plays through. It does. You really feel it. And I think that really comes through watching the behind the scenes stuff where, you know, um, Sam Hargrave and uh, Chris Hemsworth are talking about filming a fight scene that lasts mm-hmm. maybe six minutes. Sam and they, being the director. Right? Yeah. yeah. Sam yeah. Hargrave. Okay. Yeah. Being the director. Uh, they talked, they filmed this fight scene over the course of four days. Yeah. And that's how long it takes to get one fight scene. But then they do another car chase scene that involves fighting in one take or in, or at least making it look like one take. So it's like maybe two or three that are seamlessly woven together, but it's still 10 minutes of time in three takes. Yeah. And so they, you know, like it just shows you like how much truly goes into it. Can we, can we talk about that car scene real quick? Oh my gosh. It it was, it was to me one of the most, cause I don't really like car chases. I think they kind of drag on. Sure. I think that this was one of the most well done car chases I have seen in a long time. Because it's just entertaining, and you're you're the the camera work here. I really feel like these cameramen were halfway doing parkour. Oh, oh, I, while filming, yes. they were. Yes, um, and that's kind of something funny because we were talking about this, and I was like, no, 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 guys, uh, because I'm. I pride myself on, you know, <laughs> having knowing, experience, knowing how <laughs> having experience in movie making. No, uh, knowing how movies work, like doing a lot of research on the uh, like mm-hmm. how they do car chases and all that. What not? And I was like, oh, yeah, like that was totally just two cameras. And they were like, no, watch it. You yeah. can see where it shifts. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So just like the camera the camera angle prowess that was that was in right. this movie is very impressive. And in like in one of the things about that is that in ninety eight percent of films, you would have been exactly right mm-hmm. of where the cameras were stationed. But watching I found a video, you know, showing the behind the scenes. Yeah. And uh this particular scene, um, just to go into how crazy it is and how much of a product of love it is from a stuntman turned director, the cameraman in this car chase, is sitting on the front end of a Toyota Camry right. that is participating in the chase. Yeah. You never see it on camera because the cameraman's on it, right. but it is there with all of the other cars. And there's a scene where they like he run, the camera runs up next to the cars, and then they all go into reverse. And what, what this was where I pointed out was uh, the camera actually is handed through the window of the car. Yeah. And it looks like it, it could be two separate cuts, but it, we showed where it's one single cut. Here's what happened. It's a, it's a continuous take. It is into a continuous the co- take into, into the, the car. car. Yeah. So here's what happened, right? Watching this video. He is buckled onto the front end of this Camry. They pull up to the first stop. If you watch, they pull up to that first stop. Somebody actually unbuckles the cameraman who is Sam Hargrave. The director is also the cameraman because this is stuff that he's like, this is what I want to do. I'm going to be the one to do it. Yeah. I imagine that he was like, no one else is going to take liability. Like I'm not going to get a liability suit for this. I'm just going to do it. Exactly. So they pull up next to the car. They, everyone shifts into reverse. He gets unbuckled and he's just holding on for the next 10 seconds as they're reversing at 40 miles an hour and then jumps off of the front of the car and hands the camera to a cameraman that's been tucked into the back seat. Like it is such a product of love from stuntmen for <laughs> stuntmen and people who love stunts. Yeah. Like it, and it, and it really shows in the way the actors talk about them. Mm-hmm. So um, the obvious one being Chris Hemsworth, who is, you know, he's an athlete, he's a fighter, he's a stunt, he's done stunts in the past. Like he is the star of this movie. He is the star. 
star. Like, and he's kind of, he kind of takes everything in stride. He talks about how much he loved it and sometimes he right. hated it, but that's it. But the one to look at is the kid uh, who plays Avi, the, mm-hmm. the, the hostage kid in the movie. The one who's being extracted. The one who's being extracted. The way he talks about it is so funny to me because he's like, Sam's crazy. He just has these ideas and he just does them. And I don't know how to handle it because it's like, that's stupid and nobody would do it. And he's like, yeah, but I'm going to do it anyway. And it works like in listening to him talk about how cool it is watching a stuntman to handle a camera mm-hmm. is like really like, I want to watch that movie again and really just kind of like get into the mindset of like watching what they did to make it yeah. instead of enjoying it for what it originally was. Yeah. I want a, a third party uh, camera viewing of this movie. Yeah, I wanted to watch every final cut from a film uh, from a <laughs> filming standpoint. <laughs> right. That that is my ultimate goal. Yeah. Because it it is really fascinating. Like I don't think that by any stretch of the imagination like this is groundbreaking cinema as far as stories go. No. But once you get behind the scenes and look at the filmmaking that went into it, it is pretty impressive because Sam Hargrave has some pretty, pretty big stuntman credits, right? Yeah. So, um, I, I have a hard time looking at this film and not thinking of it as a Marvel film. Um, because of course it is, you know, written by the, the Russo brothers and stars Chris Hemsworth actually helped write the graphic, the graphic novel that was based off of this, who, which also Andy Parks, who, who wrote it with them was also a a Marvel writer. Of course, So it really just like, it plays like a Marvel comic. It plays like a Marvel film. Um, and Hargrave was the stunt coordinator for both, uh, Captain America, Civil War and Avengers Endgame. Right. Um, and you've actually seen him before if you yeah. saw Endgame because the scene is a very memorable scene where Captain America fights Captain America. Right. Well, that's actually Sam Hargrave and his brother Daniel Hargrave fighting each other as stuntmen right. on the set instead of uh, Chris Evans stepping in and doing mm-hmm. it. Um, so we have dealt like you've seen him before. You know the name even if you didn't know it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, this is a very accomplished stuntman, and I think his directing debut has, has been a big success as well. Definitely. Uh, it is actually on track to be the most watched feature film on Netflix. Which is crazy it's to me. It's insane. Because it's one of those things, like, it's it's like, so I, I like to call them jokingly good guys with guns, uh-huh. right? The good guys with guns genre, because it encompasses the military hero, the old Westerns, mm-hmm. right? Like we like the good guys with guns, yeah. but not everyone likes that. It tends to be a pretty, I won't call it niche because it, it has a little broader audience than a lot of the, the kind of really like pulp, uh, pulp fiction, you know, esque films, but it does have a smaller audience and it has a hard time breaking out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, a lot of people do just say like, oh, well, I want a story. I want to like feel more things. I don't just want a straight action film. Right. This is going to be boring to me. There's no plot. Right. And I think a lot of people say that. And I think a lot of people are justified in saying mm-hmm. that. Um, so the fact that this movie, despite being what a lot of people are often against, is doing so incredibly well uh, is is both uh, surprising and good because I, I do think it has a lot of good qualities as a film. Yeah. I, I think mean, I think there are certain things that it has going for it, um, such as the Hemsworth name. Um, it also has the Russo brothers' names yeah. to it. But I also think that we we've talked about the stunts and the action and stuff. It has a it, it there's certain moments in this film that have kind of a deeper connection and a 
kind of a deeper plot than I was expecting. I'd like to kind of dive into that a little bit. Yeah, Ralph, that's really true. And Tim, you were talking about the good guys with guns genre. Right. Uh, But the thing is, there really aren't any good guys in this movie. And I think that's something that makes it really unique. That's something that I was drawn to. Mm -hmm. It's very telling about like the time that we're in as well. Um, Because there aren't any truly good guys. Like the kid who's getting extracted is the kid of a drug lord who's been captured by another drug lord. Neither one of those are, like, great things. And your protagonist is a hired gun. Exactly. Uh, The the main guy who's going after him is also a hired gun. A hired gun who's a drunk. Right. And who initially says that he's only in this for the money and the hope that he catches a bullet. Like no one in this movie is actually good. There's a point where they think that they're not going to get paid. And the girl who helps orchestrate says, leave the kid. This, this is a dead deal. Right. We can get you out, but you have to drop the kid. Yeah. And so like there truly isn't really good people in this movie. And I appreciate that because sometimes having too much of a golden boy is obnoxious. Yeah. Well, and we've even seen it. And I think the Russo brothers learned a good lesson with that in the progression of the Marvel films. Right. Yeah. Because if you look at the most and this isn't true for the comics, but but from the Marvel films, you know, the most popular general hero is Iron Man. Mm -hmm. And a big part of that, I think, is because he is troubled. You yeah. see him go through alcoholism. You see him go through depression. You go, see him go through PTSD. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, those are very real things that people have to deal with. Whereas the first Captain America was yeah. painful. And, it, and when he gets to Avengers, he, you know, he's got this super cringy line. It's like, there's only one God, man. And he right. doesn't wear a cape. Like, the, we don't want just a golden boy. We right. want somebody we can relate to. And that's why Captain America does way better once you introduce troubles and he yeah. starts to lose faith. So, like, I think they learned a lot from the Marvel films going into this and writing, even in writing Ciudad, because you're right. Nobody's strictly the good guy. Now, there is a clear protagonist and there is somebody you support. And I think like, but they aren't just good. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very important because, you know, it's nobody's really just good. Right. Right. Everyone has their flaws. Everyone has this dark side to them. Everybody has a motive. I mean, even the bad guy has a motive and that is that is very clear and apparent in this movie um there's also a a lot of dichotomy that happens Mm -hmm. in this movie um we see we see avi jr Mm -hmm. who's the son of a drug lord uh but that's not the life that he wants to lead right and then we see amir the guy that kidnaps him um who is seemingly, we can probably guess that he might be a second generation drug lord. Right. He, he seems very pampered and like he's used to this lifestyle. Yeah. He was, he feels very groomed for this type of lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and he's comfortable there. Avi is very clearly not. Then, for a little bit more dichotomy, we have a kid, mm-hmm. a, a street kid who's trying to be the best in his situation but is still a bad kid right like still becomes morally, a bad guy because of yeah that. 
because of what he wants to become. Yeah. So I just think that like the way that we see different dichotomies here. Right. To see like what values there are. And I think they do a good job of showing you where you can find value in each of them. Like the, mm-hmm. the, the quote unquote bad kid, he's kind of funny. Oh, and yeah. like you, you kind of get where he's going. Um, and I think this is again something the Russo brothers. I, I wanted to support him. I wanted oh, yeah. to be you like, to like I, him. I hope that you become top drug lord. Like yeah. honestly, like I hope you rise above. Kid. He makes it hard to support him, I know. but you kind of wanted to. And I think like uh, there again, I think that's something the Russo brothers learned, especially when you see movies like um, Black Panther, mm-hmm. where like Killmonger is a villain with a point. He's yeah. a villain, but he's got a freaking good point. Yeah. And it's not so, like he's an anti-hero. <laughs> like right. he really uh, He is a villain, but yeah. but you agree like you agree with him on some things, just not all of it. And yeah. I think like that's something you see a lot of. Uh, you even see that with your hero and your anti-hero in this. Yes. So there's the the hero, of course, of uh, Chris Hemsworth's Tyler Rake. Mm-hmm. Um and and a particularly good a, a dichotomy also that I want to point out. Um, so Tyler, his kind of big, like one of his secrets is that he ran from family issues. Yeah. Right. And he does what he, he did what he was doing at the time to run from family issues. Yeah. Whereas the anti-hero, the antagonist for part of it and anti-hero of Saju is doing oh, yeah. it to protect his family. Same. So it almost makes him look like a better person in that moment. Yeah. Honest, but he also does bad things. Yeah. Honestly, there was a, there was a point because and this is very early on, so I don't feel like it's a right. spoiler. There was a point where I was like, if that's what Saju needs to do to pr- protect his family, fine. Because I at that point felt so much for that character that I was I was really having a conflict. I was I was taking pen and paper notes and yeah. in my notes I put um, Saju question mark exclamation point like like right. what what is he is whose side is he on um, but I still liked him he was one of my favorite yes. characters in this movie um, and I mean maybe even if they had said that he was bad I would have still just been like straight he's, up bad, he's yeah. just trying to protect his family right. like and, and I think that's something really interesting that um uh, I hope it doesn't become predictable in films. Mm-hmm. Um, but as of right now, I enjoy this trope of everybody has a motive. Everyone's good and bad in their own light. You right. know, everybody does what they have to do to survive. Um, because I think that's a very relatable thing right now is that everyone's survival does not look the same. Right. Um, and who you view as bad may just be surviving. Well, and I think it I, I think it's a trope that I'm okay with. Yeah. Um, because uh I think Borderlands is actually uh, I know we've talked about this before, yeah. but the Borderlands series is a very good example of this because in two yeah. you have Handsome Jack who has he's a villain, he's very clearly a villain, but he has a point and you yeah. like him and he's funny and he's charming and, and but you still have to overthrow him because he is the villain. But yeah. but you get it. Um, and it's even kind of sad when you beat him because you get it. Honestly, you don't feel great about it at the very end. Right. Like you're really like, really? Right. And then there's villains like in the third game where you have uh, the Calypso twins where it feels good <laughs> to put them down. Like when you kill them in the final boss battle, that is a victorious moment because you hate them and they make you hate them. But they right. still have a point. They yeah. always have a motive because for good writing of an anti uh, antagonist, anti-hero villain, whatever you want to call it, 
they have to have a motive. Oh, definitely. And it's, it has to be a motive that people can understand. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're kind of in in writing terms. We're kind of past the just kicking puppies evil. Yeah. Yes, motive. exactly. Nobody's just bad anymore. Right. Uh, yeah. You can't like it's hard to accept. Yeah, and at the same time, this movie flips it on its head and says nobody's bad, but nobody's good either. And I think that's a that's an important thing to remember that instead of strictly like your villains have a motive, like your good people, you don't always have to agree with them either. Right. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Now, before we move on, mm-hmm. quick Tim rant. Okay. So, the graphic novel this is based off of uh, takes place in Ciudad, hence mm-hmm. the title, right. which is in Paraguay. It's still, right. uh, it's the daughter of a drug lord kidnapped by another drug lord, but it is overall the same story, mm-hmm. um, but with the girl instead of a boy in a different setting. I think they'd made an incredible choice making it where they did. Yeah. Um, so when Ralph and I started watching this movie, we played the game, uh, is it South America or Africa? Because <laughs> 90% of action movies take place in one of those two places. And Neither. Neither of them. We were wrong. <laughs> uh, but he, like he said, uh, you know, as it, when it switched, I was like, oh, Pakistan, that makes sense. Which technically I was wrong. It's Bangladesh, mm-hmm. except for the fact that Bangladesh is uh, previously known as East Pakistan. Right. Um, and so it, you were close. I was close. Um, and we kept noting that this film has a very Bollywood film um, feel. Yeah, especially like the villain feels very Bollywood. He's very Bollywood. So a lot of our fights feel kind of Bollywood. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of that comes from the cat, the cast being from Bollywood. A lot mm-hmm. of them are big Bollywood actors. Um, and I think like, A, that is something, a feel that you could only get by setting it in India and Bangladesh instead of in South America. Totally. Uh, but it also makes it feel more real to a lot of people. Um, so just to like really get into it for a quick second. So to understand the conflict that happens there and why this is a very real situation for some people, especially the bad kid. Right. Right. Um, this is a very real situation for some kids. Um, in 1947, Pakistan separates from India. Mm-hmm. Right. And we know that, uh, like we, we associate that typically with West Pakistan, mm-hmm. but technically they, they separate into West and East Pakistan on either side of India but they were separated by a thousand kilometers of Indian territory. Hmm. So West Pakistan didn't trust East Pakistan. East Pakistan wanted to separate. So to be fair, West Pakistan probably shouldn't have trusted. (laughs) But it resulted in them launching Operation Searchlight, which resulted in 7,000 deaths and 3,000 arrests uh, in one night. My God. That's 10,000 people gone from your country in one night. Now, that doesn't feel like a lot for Americans because we have a very large country. These are small countries. But these are small countries, exactly. So that's a very big thing. After that, East Pakistan uh, becomes the Bengal area, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they go through a bunch of political coups, military takeovers, oppression, uh, and then they become Bangladesh which we know today. However, Bangladesh is hated by India because they were Pakistan and they're hated by Pakistan because they're not Pakistan. Right. Right. So they're in a position where they don't No other government likes them. They the UN doesn't, really the UN anywhere. doesn't want to be able to deal with them because of the coups. Uh, your surrounding countries hate them because of various political affiliations. So you have a, com- a country that's in turmoil, in poverty, in a bad situation. So drug lords take over. So uh, this turf war is something that is very, uh, a very real Potent. situation. It's, yeah, it's it's something that is still going on to the point 
that in 2018, uh, their government started an anti-drug operation that resulted in 15,000 arrests in three weeks. That is how heavily the drug trade is uh, enforced and and integrated into that country. And it's such a bad situation that, like, you it, it makes it easy to feel uh, knowing that mm-hmm. makes it easy to feel for the kids to make it feel yeah. for the people who are involved because that's that is their life yeah like not everyone right like this is clearly a, a pointed camera sure um but for certain people that is a very real thing well and i mean that was the thing that uh i think i brought up when we were just talking through the movie about like you know, Avi has the opportunity to question his standing right. because of his privilege. Because yeah, he's, he's he's in a place where he has the money, he has the resources, and an education. If if he wanted out, he has the opportunities to get out. But Farhad, who is literally a street kid, who yeah, he does bad things. He thinks he's a badass, even though he's just a, a edge lord kid. You know, like he. He doesn't really have a lot of other outs. His right. his way out is to impress this very wealthy man, right. and hopefully he can get a job and feed his uh, street kid family. Yeah. You know? Oh, absolutely. And I think it's something important for us to see as an audience too. Yeah. Because it, it's it's uh, like we talked about with Jordan Jordan Peele's films. Um, pointing a dark mirror at us. I think this is a bit of a mirror as well because so Avi having a point of privilege um, because, you know, that's what it is. Yeah, He is is in a privileged position. He can see evil for what it is. Yeah. But for the other kid. Yeah, Farhad. Farhad, this evil... Right, mm-hmm. that the, the that a person in in a position of privilege can see as evil for him, it That's looks like a way out. Light. The exactly. person, the person yeah. on the ground, it, it's it's a harder viewpoint. Exactly, it looks like the good life. Yeah. And so I think that's something important for us to understand, especially as we are trying to right now in a time of quarantine where people in a position of privilege say like, oh, like we should, you know, we can be doing these things while we're at home, uh, versus people who say, I still have to go to work. So yeah. that you can have this time, right? Like, I think that's something that's very important for us to see right now and in general. It's super timely. Yeah. So if you want to, you know, focus on the politics, you can because there's plenty to consume there. If you want to focus on the stunts and the action, that's there too. If you want some just pretty good writing overall, the Russo brothers gave that to you. I think Extraction kind of, it. That, I think that's one of the reasons it's doing so well is because it's giving a lot of, different things to different audiences. Um, so definitely check it out when you guys get the time to. Um, but now yeah. here's going to be a, a little ad from us, and let's go on to the next Netflix original. Hello, and welcome to The Geek Easy, where we talk about new, exciting, nerdy things and drink cocktails inspired by them. Our next episode could be sponsored by you. By sponsoring an indie podcast, you are in a position to both benefit from and support a growing and active community. What's more, we carefully adjust our prices to reflect our average listenership for recent episodes. This means that whenever you work with the Geek Easy, you can sleep easy, knowing that you've received fair and affordable pricing. Thank you, and we look forward to working with you. week the theme continues of beth watching things that she wasn't sure she was gonna like 
Oh, that is true, though. <laughs> but it turned out for the positive. It did. It really did. Um, right now on Netflix, there is a new Ghost in the Shell anime uh, that we checked out. Uh, and this was actually my first introduction to Ghost in the Shell. I know I'm pretty late to the game because uh, this is a franchise that has been going for um, uh, 30 since, years now. Yeah, I mean, since yeah. 1995 when the first movie came out. Yeah, um, well, and the manga came out in like 89, so yeah. So it's been around a while. But this was my first time watching it, and I was really skeptical about it. Um but I really do love the characters and the story. Um, yeah, and it was an interesting perspective to talk about going in because yeah. I, you know, the Ghost in the Shell standalone complex was the original um, series. It was a right. movie called Ghost in the Shell and then a series standalone complex. And standalone complex was one of, not the, but one of my first anime. And so, like, that is a very formative experience for me. And so when you were like, oh, I've never seen anything about Ghost in the Shell. I'm just going to watch this and not read into it. And I was like, okay. Yeah, we uh, were a little hesitant. <laughs> Good luck. Right. Especially uh, because, you know, and, and I, I will fully admit that I was wrongfully pretentious about this. Really? Um, when I saw they announced, because I remember showing Ralph the screenshots. They announced a couple years ago, but then uh, re-announced that they were releasing mm -hmm. Standalone Complex 2045. In the last couple of months, and I showed Ralph the screenshot of Major that they released, and I said, "Why the hell does she look like that?" Yeah. Um, I I didn't like it. I, you know, I was not on board uh, with the 3D animation or or yeah. Let Let's go ahead and just let's go ahead and dive get into straight the into that. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Netflix is becoming known for this sort of 3D animation style um, that is uh, resembling Ruby from Rooster Teeth. Yeah, and, uh, and Knights of Sidonia dead yeah. as well. And to be fair, uh, these are separate animation studios that right. are that are making these anime. But uh, I don't but know it, if we're on board. It's it's a hard style to get behind because it's you know we're we're coming from two D animation that is doing incredible things. Like if you watch the Fate series. Uh, uh, you know, while it has its flaws, the the fate like fate grand order, fate zero, um, they have incredible animation that just I mean, you watch it and you feel like it's three D, even yeah. though it's two D. And so when we go to the three D, we're suddenly pulled out of that, um, because it's not as good. It, yeah, it, and it just. Yeah, well, we're used to like Miyazaki films. We're, right, we're now we're now spoiled with My Hero Academia movies. Like, I mean, the other thing though that's really frustrating is that there is a way to marry the two. Right, there's a way there is. to properly do um, 2D and 3D animation in a way that looks really, really nice. Right. And whether it can be done or not, you know, because if we want to talk about like amazing 3D animation, the Final Fantasy films yeah. have been the epitome of that. Absolutely. Um, but but whether they can be done or not, what Netflix has done so far with their 3D animation and what they the companies that they have 
distributed films for have not been great. Um, They're just not up to par. They are leaving me personally with something to be desired. Right. And, 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 you know, I definitely, going into Ghost in the Shell, dove into that and was ready to just throw it off as another bad animation. Whereas, uh, like, I I didn't give them enough credit. And we'll talk about this more because I I did end up liking the series a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, But they do such a good job with their writing, Mm -hmm. uh, for one, um, and that it really does make up for it. Like, uh, we just mentioned Knights of Sidonia, Mm -hmm. which is another Netflix original series, which I could not watch because of of the animation. But I see still online talking about a uh, season two and how good the writing was and how great the story was. So like, you know, it, it's one of those things like, like, uh, don't be me. Um, when you're getting ready to go into ghost in the shell, if you have seen ghost in the shell before, if you haven't, um, just get through that animation. Like yeah. I know it's hard to watch for a bit, but it it's takes worth it. probably three to four episodes just yeah. to get, to like switch your brain into the mode of animation that this is. Yes, it does. Um, and it's and it's really frustrating too. It almost feels like, and I couldn't find any information to actually back this up, but it feels like uh, Netflix was in the COVID couch crunch, and they were like, "We're just putting some stuff out that we just got to get this out there." Um, before everything was polished and finished. Because there are parts in some of the fights that look incredible. Not the first uh, metahuman when you first meet him fight. <laughs> um, but Or the first post-human fight when you first meet him. Um, but some of the fights look amazing. And then there are some, like, wide establishing shots that, like, they gave them literally a first draft. And they were like, yeah, that's fine. You know, they didn't go back and touch it up or put any detail in it or anything. And it is distracting. It's distracting at first. It feels like you're watching a Final Fantasy movie and then it switches to an in-game cutscene. And it, it, it takes you out of it for a minute. Um, that being said, I really loved the story. Even oh, yeah. I got so attached to the characters. I was so invested. Like I teared up at parts. It's very funny. Um, it, it's a good story. But the animation leaves me something to be desired. Yeah. At times it can be quite uh, disruptive. Now, Beth. Yeah. Do you realize what we've done? What? We've performed our signature move. Oh my God. We jumped too far in. We did, but so, I but I enjoyed this. Yeah, uh, I did too. <laughs> if you are like Beth and you have never seen Ghost in the Shell before, we should probably tell you what it's about. There's a lot to grasp. So, Ghost in the Shell deals with cybernetic humans. Humans have cybernetic prostheses and enhancements. They have what's called a cyber brain, uh, which is trained to link up to networks and systems. Um, and you deal with this sort of community that is formed around where some people, most people at the point of 2045 have, uh, these cyber brains and yeah. some do not. You got, uh, you got internet on the brain. You got internet on the brain. And I will say if 2045 is your first introduction, 
you will need guidance on this part because uh, Tim walked in while I was watching this and I was like, hold up, I have questions. <laughs> yeah. uh, there is there is a lot that they leave unexplained because but, I mean, it's a, it's a direct continuation. Yeah, it is. But was so one of the things that I think this series does quite well is that it is a direct continuation, but it also stands on its own. Yeah. Um, which fits with the name. Uh, uh, SAC 2045 is standalone complex. Yeah. So. Um, I mean, I could have pieced it together, but having, right. having background Having somebody to help you. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, so this particular series happens after what is called the global simu- simultaneous default, where every bank around the world defaults and every currency loses value. Everyone loses all of their money. And now what do you do, right, when you don't have any money? Well, the world governments respond by saying, well, we have this thing called sustainable war. Um, We are going to start a war with other countries. Sounds super great. Super, super great. Uh, Which uh, sustainable war, which we'll enact with other countries and maintain, and it will stimulate our economy because that is what wars tend to do. Um, And it will keep overpopulation down. Mm -hmm. Now... If this sounds familiar, it should, uh, is from the book 1984 yeah. uh, by George Orwell. This is exactly what they did. The, uh, the world government said, hey, we're going to go with war each other with each other and we're going to maintain it. And that's going to help our economy. And uh, war is peace. War is peace. And uh, that like that, I mean, really, that is the beginning of 1984. Mm-hmm. That is how everything starts. And so in this particular series of ghosts in the shell you get to see a lot of what the aftermath of that looks like for the people yeah um in a way that i think even does it a little better than coast uh, than uh 1984 did because you only see it from the perspective of one, one guy person, yeah where as ghost in the shell deals with a uh, police slash mercenary force that kind of like gets a chance to show you what the people are doing yeah it's and it's very interesting coming from this police slash mercenary viewpoint because they are military. You know, they they are mm-hmm. police force, uh, but also they're not. So right. so they're right there with you of being like, wait a minute, I see that, you know, we're being kept in the dark here. Like, is this still what we want? And there's this real there's a lot of conspiracies yeah. going on. Just, um, just, just to defend George Orwell real quick. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he did write it back in 1949. I no, mean, he yeah. did a great job. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, I, I think um, they took that idea and they expanded. Upon yeah, they, it. they kept going it. with it. No, I, I, I do want to fix my statement. I don't think they did it better than 1984. I think they expanded upon it. Yeah. Um, because 1984 was working in an entirely hep- hypothetical matter, uh, whereas that is because that is whereas more and more of those things have happened uh, <laughs> i just want to do an episode on how accurate 1984 <laughs> got it and could be yeah so here's the thing about that ralph uh if we do an episode on that that means i actually have to think about it <laughs> we don't want to think about uh, we it. don't want to think about it we don't want to know that much we don't want to know too much about the ghost in the shell just that there might be a ghost in the <laughs> shell right um, so you do get to see a lot about that. And, uh, and this series, uh, it's, it's really interesting to me because it, it, 
you know, they set up this political situation of the sustainable war mm. and what that looks like for the people that live in a country beneath it. Um, but it also brings in this concept of the post-human. So, right. you know, because it's a series that is entirely dealt with cybernetic humans, it, of course, always gets into who can take advantage of it. Right. Um, so one of the original antagonists was the laughing man who could hack any human um, through their cyber brain. If they had a cyber terrifying. brain, they could be hacked. Right. It absolutely, yeah, it absolutely is. But considering that we carry a lot of our knowledge on our phones, right? We like are what's, half, what's that different? We are halfway to a cyber brain. Yeah. Like, I can very feasibly see, like, if I could just call people from my mind, right. yeah, I'd, I'd sign up for that without thinking about consequences. Right, yeah. Um, and so, you know, the series keeps, keeps going with that by keeping the sustainable war as like the overarching thing that's mm -hmm. happening, but they also bring in this concept of post-humans, which is this new sort of controlled cyber-esque human, um, that's causing problems, uh, and seems to be related to the sustainable war, mm. um, because they seem to be propagating it yeah despite the fact that they aren't controlled by the governments they're right. like doing it in a way that it, it, it's it's very interesting it's very weird in a way that i cannot describe yeah. if i had the entire 45 minute episode <laughs> to do so um but it is something that you know like that is there and something that you should be thinking about yeah um and i think this series does equally well to every other uh ghost in the shell series by making you think. Oh, definitely. Um, because it's something that, like, you know, like I said, it's very 1984-esque, and I don't think that's a problem. I don't no. think that's a problem for Ghost in the Shell. I don't think that's a problem for 1984. Uh, because it's always been a very literary-based series. Mm -hmm. um, Ghost in the Shell, I, you know, you may recognize this, you may not, is a reference to an, a book called Ghost in the Machine which is a philosophical psychology piece which talks about the interplay between human and robotics. Yeah. Um, it's like, how do you determine what's the human interaction, what's the robotic interaction, and really is there a difference and does it matter? Yeah. Um, so even the title of the original series deals with this. And every series that's come forth from that has been a part of this sort of search of philosophical literary pieces. We're looking at you, iRobot. <laughs> yes, exactly. But, and I mean, that's a thing that they even touch on in uh, 2045. They yeah. touch on this idea of are robots equal to real people? Like, do they feel and think the same? At one point, uh, there's a character that mistakes a real person for a robot because that's yes. like the world that we that they live in. Yeah, uh, that is their reality. And one of my favorite things about that episode is that in mistaking a real person for an AI, yeah, he also says because he does have uh, Bato is the character in question. Mm -hmm. He has cybernetic parts enhancements um, yeah enhancements he has a cyber brain and uh, when they're talking you know the character is talking to him she says oh we've made a lot of uh, improvements we've increased a lot of things and he says oh by putting my people to work as slaves yeah and so you know it's like he he's calling her out yeah because he feels like his people being people who have cyber cybernetic cybernetics yeah um are being oppressed but in doing so, 
he's also <laughs> being yeah. uh, oppressing her because he thinks that he she's, she's an AI, an AI. Uh, when she's a very real human trying to talk to him. Yeah. Um. So you know, it, it that is a very interesting scene and a very uh, interesting motif that they bring back for sure. So overall, if you can just hang in there for the first three episodes and pretend that you're watching a video game cutscene for parts of it, uh, this show is so worth it. I I laughed, I cried, uh, I thought yeah, it was it was amazing, um, story wise. So highly recommend. But if you know where you can find the original standalone complex. <laughs> Please let us Please know. Please let us know because I've never seen it. I really and I want, want to watch to. it again. Um, but we haven't been able to find it online. No, we've been looking everywhere for it. So if you know where you can get it, hit us up, please. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, if you have any other comments or add-ons that you'd like to do, please email us. And uh, Beth, let us know where you can reach us at. Thank you guys so, so much for listening to this episode. We really appreciate you. And we're on Patreon now. So head on over to patreon.com slash thegeekeasy. We have some really great bonus content on Patreon for our subscribers. From detailed drink recipes to fun nerdy rants about things that Tim and I like. To my favorite, which is our party foul reel, which is a bunch of goofs that Ralph edits out every episode. So head on over and check it out. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Geek Easy. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the Geek Easy was written and performed by Ralph Butcher. All of our artwork is created by Kelly Alexander. You can check out more of her work at Metal Jupiter on Instagram or Twitter. Finally, the Geek Easy is written and performed and produced by us. Thank you for listening.